It's a true joy to be sitting back here to share the Word of God with you this morning. Um, I want to read um, from Mark's Gospel in chapter 4. Um, in so doing, um, I would preface it by saying we're going to move through more than one subject and um i hesitated to do it this way but um there's there's so much in this and there's so much that isn't exactly in it but is behind it that changes everything when you know what that is and so let's have fun with this it's in mark chapter 4 and verse 35 and on that day when evening came, he, Jesus, said to them, Let us go over to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling up. And Jesus himself was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion. And they got him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care <clears throat> that we are perishing? And he woke up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Silence or hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you so cowardly? Do you still have no faith? And they became very afraid, and were saying to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? The story is pretty well known. You've probably heard it since Sunday school. Um, but I, I want to look at this story, which spills over to other stories in the Gospels, uh, just to begin with, as to what is going on here. Um, the first thing is that in the previous chapter, so just before this, Jesus had chosen the twelve, and they were special. He had many who would call themselves his disciples, but he put his mark of approval on the twelve and said, I want you with me. And so they are entering into a certain relationship with Jesus that is very well known um, in Bible days. Um, I, I don't know how you have in the past read of Jesus and his twelve disciples, or whether you thought of it at all, that Jesus just sort of hikes around Israel, carting 12 uh, fishermen or half ways to that, um, and they're not the best in the world. They're always going up the wrong path. Um, Peter blurts out stuff that he has to be corrected. Um, and nobody questions, this is not normal. You know, um, when I came to Bandera, I didn't select 12 farm boys and say, okay, I want you to be with me. 
um, we don't do it like that. Uh, actually, the the church, and I say that in terms of the historic church going back, um, they they have done something like it. That they've introduced uh, when when you become a Christian, they put you in a discipleship class, and hopefully that's going to make you one of the twelve disciples. And um, if you're not uh, there, then you'll be uh, in a Sunday school class, which again is strange because I thought that's what the pastor did is teach you, but apparently not. Uh, you go to Sunday school for that, and he says something else. I don't know, but and I really don't know. But um, all these attempts of the church to get to something like this, well, let me tell you that what Jesus did in gathering those 12 around him was very normal. Um, a rabbi in the days of Jesus and on either side of the days of Jesus would gather around him a group of young guys and they would be called, and I, I want you to remember this word, and if it's only just for the when I'm talking here, but they were called the Talmud, the Talmud, T-A-L-M-I-D. It's a Hebrew word, and <clears throat> we have it translated for pretty much the length of, we've had a, an English translation, he's been translated as disciple. Well, let me tell you, and it's very, very, very important, that the Talmud had absolutely nothing to do with the new converts class, had nothing to do with Sunday school, so help us God, and um, it had nothing to do with going to Bible school. Uh, it was being a Talmud. <clears throat> Very different. And we have missed this so totally in our Western church that we have a, <coughs> excuse me, no idea what it means to be a disciple of Jesus because a disciple, as we understand it today, is not Talmud, anything but. Um, and that lays the foundation for what our message is about because we are calling people to come and follow Jesus. The word follow there is to become Talmud. And so this is the essence of the gospel. If you don't get this, you're going to be off in your understanding of the gospel. And, of course, we are in our Western church so far off because this has been the way it is for centuries. Okay, um, what is a Talmud? Talmud, um, let me say it again, uh, in case some of you haven't heard it yet, that it has absolutely nothing to do with what we call a disciple today. That, that's an invention of the church. Actually, the church at its lowest point. Um, and I'll get to that in a minute. But a Talmud, they were not merely learning to know what their rabbi believed. That's very important. The, the Talmud were not expected 
to become mini theologians. They were not expected to be able to sit down with others and tell the others what their rabbi that they now followed around the country believed. That was not the meaning of Talmud. The meaning of Talmud was that they would get so close to their rabbi that they would become who he is, not what he believed. Very, very different. They, young teenagers for the most part, would become replicas of their rabbi. And, of course, within the, the whole Jewish scene at that time, it, it's, it becomes almost ridiculous. And I'm not suggesting we all become Jewish Talmud. Um, because in order to do this, they're going to become who their rabbi is. So they would then adjust their entire diet to eat what their rabbi ate. And so anyone who would meet them knows what the rabbi's diet is by the way the Talmud eats. Um, they would dress in a fashion that was a replica of the rabbi. And so you would see how he dressed in detail because every one of the Talmud would dress exactly the same. Um, it, it, go, it goes on. Um, there's not one part his sleep habits would be adopted by the Talmud. It meant that after a very short time, to meet the Talmud was to meet the rabbi in terms of who he was, what he liked, what he disliked, um, the whole meaning to life that he gave to the Talmud. That was there. That was being a Talmud. Um, whether he was asleep, they would sleep like he slept. If he was awake, they would wake up and work the day the same as he did. They were almost robotic in, in their uh, following him. His relationship to God um, would be in the same way. If, if the rabbi would get up in early hours to read the Hebrew scriptures, then all the Talmud would get up and read, not with him, but watching him and doing it as he did. It gets so ridiculous on that that they imitated his voice so that you could tell who was a Talmud of this rabbi because he had that same accent and he would use the same um, words in his conversation that were unique to the uh, rabbi. And, um, of course, sometimes the rabbi had a speech deficiency. So all of his Talmud yeah. took on that deficiency. They, they, if necessary, will speak with a, with a lisp. Um, you notice all of my disciples say, don't be daft. And, and um, <laughs> it's the, the uniqueness of, of the rabbi was completely absorbed by the, these young men. Um, they would give up their entire life. They would give up the whole hope of what their life held in order to be absolutely one with the will of this rabbi and learn his life. They were trained to become who the rabbi was. That's, that's the point. It was a relational thing. It wasn't a student 
They were not learning his doctrine. They, they were learning him. And in learning him, it forged a certain kind of relationship, a unique one. And at a certain time, the rabbi would say, okay, you've got it. Um, you know exactly who I am, the way I live, what I do. And hopefully you've picked up some understanding of God in all of that. And you're on your own now. You go and find a bunch of Talmud and let them now imitate you. And, um, and so, um, that was the way the, the whole rabbinical thing worked. Today, <clears throat> now I might say, um, somewhere back there, uh, the church of that day changed from Talmud, which is Hebrew, and they had a very poor translation. It's so poor, it's not even worth calling it, from Talmud to disciple. Now, what is a disciple? <clears throat> Just in plain English, you know, when, when I say you are a disciple, I'm a disciple, what, what do we mean? It, it means that um, you are disciplined. Disciple comes from discipline. Write it down and you'll see how they, that happens. And, and so a disciple or one who followed the rabbi or the leader is defined as disciplined to study. That was the whole idea in, in the West. We've been taught as a disciple, you are now disciplined to study, and, and in your study, you will go to school and you'll be taught and there'll be exams and there'll be tests, and, and you actually might never know your teacher. You only know what he believes. And they, and they shut the door. He's got his own life to live now, and um, you let him live it and you go ahead and study. By the deep night hours, you study for exams, and, and if you get the right, we will give you things behind your name to say that you are now a disciple. You, you have studied. Sunday school becomes um, almost uh, the same thing. If, if you come to this Sunday school all year long, we'll give you a little tag, a stick on your, your jacket. You don't do that here? Yeah, well, anyway, um, we, we, we had those things and each, each year hooked onto the last one. And so people would come to Sunday school and they had this long, uh, little thing. They were clanging on the floor soon. And, um, that means they had been disciplined. They had been to all the classes and they had listened and <clears throat> passed all the exams, even though they were, just uh, little things for Sunday school. Um, so a disciplined student, he now has an intellectual destination. Think about it. To be a dedicated, devout Christian, you have an intellectual destination. You are going to learn this and be able to repeat it back to your teacher. And, and the moment you go beyond Sunday school, then you get the tests and the exams. You go to Bible school, which is nothing more 
then in exactly the same way as they do by a college of air for anything, use the same curriculum almost, uh, and same, uh, you go to school for so many weeks and then you're off school and you, oh, I, you know what I mean. Um, one who studies, um, they're expected at some point to totally regurgitate everything they've been taught. And it, it is just about that. They call it cramming for an exam. Yeah. It means I don't have a clue what this is about, but I'll memorize it and get my pass. Mm-hmm. And we call that person um, a doctor of divinity. Uh, we call them masters of theology. And that's supposed to make them ready to be a pastor in terms of what we think of it in the West, which is you don't come close to me, you can't investigate me, you don't have anything to do with me, just sit down there, take these notes, and I'll see you tomorrow. Um, the, so it's a, such a long way from everything that was be done that the, the teacher now is one who knows and the emphasis on what he knows, not who he is. And so his life doesn't necessarily have to match up to what he believes because the whole thing is if you know it, if you know it, and you can pass it on in some form to another, then that makes you a very educated person. Um, but who you are, well, that's nobody's business. You, you live your life alone. <clears throat> Do you see where this is going? Um, we want to, a Talmud wants to know who his rabbi is and then how does he live in the light of what he believes. I might not understand what he believes, but I want to see how he lives. I want to see how it changes all aspects of his life. And so it, um, today... We've got to face our problem before we can find God's answer to it. We're taught to live and be guided by that destination. And beware, and I say it to all of you, because I recognize that here and there on Zoom, there's a great emphasis on teaching. It's not only me, it's Andrew and Marshall and Clint. We emphasize that. And I won't, don't want you to think that what I'm saying, I de-emphasize that. I'm just saying that what is taught has got to be lived. And if it isn't lived, and if it isn't open to the public, then forget it, it you, you've missed it. Whereas that's not the meaning of disciple. Um, <clears throat> Jesus made it plain that he was um, Talmudin. Jesus. Yeah. Jesus said in many ways that he had a relationship to the Father, which was that of a Talmudin. Um, In fact, back in Isaiah, you might remember in our English translation, which is taken from the church's position over the centuries, um, it says, he gave me. Jesus is speaking in prophecy, and he says, He, my Father, gave to me the ear of a disciple. And in, that in the Hebrew is Talmudin. Um, 
but we we think again of Jesus pouring over books and memorizing and studying. It's not so. The, the whole of Jesus' life as Talmudim was that he came to know his father. Um, so he, he, how many times did he say, uh, the words I speak to you, I don't speak of my I, self. I wouldn't say anything to you unless I heard my father say it. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. Um, a Talmud in it is the mirror image. Um, he said, I, I don't just do these works. My father does them and I <clears throat> work with him. We're in sync. And so he said, I'm not here to tell you all about me. I'm here that you might look at me and see my father. Now that might explain some of those verses that you've read. That's what Jesus was saying as a Talmudin. Um, and, and it came to the point where he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Now I want you to think about this um, as we move on. Um, he said... <clears throat> To reject me is to reject the Father. Do you remember that? And then on other occasions, when he sent out his disciples, he said, if you accept these disciples, the Talmudin, um, you'll accept me. And if you reject them, you reject me. That's a, a, now that's what the Talmudin was really after. Uh, it wasn't just, I'll wear you the same clothes as you do. Um, and I'll talk with your accent, it was that you become absolutely one together. Um, and so you must never think of Jesus <coughs> and the disciples as sort of Bible students. Yeah. Now, I was raised with that, that they were, the disciples were those who had, gone all the way with God. Ever heard that expression? And um, they they were in Bible school and they were learning the scriptures. <clears throat> Jesus was revealing to them the whole new covenant and um, they were learning secrets of that covenant. Um, but Jesus said on another occasion, no one knows the Father except me. That's a massive statement. As we've said before, that means uh, he was saying Moses didn't know the Father and Abraham didn't know the Father. I am the one and only human on the planet to know the Father. And I will teach what I know of the Father. That is a relational knowing. I'm not going to give you a series of Bible studies on the Father. I'm going to teach you how I know the Father. And that word know is the word of intimacy. It's never used for know about. It means the knowing of binding together. <clears throat> and, um, and so Jesus said, I will teach anyone. He was saying, if you try and get the picture, no one knows the Father except me. And there's an end to it. There's others who know the Father. Those that I will teach who the Father is. Uh, you'll come under my Talmudin. You you will know me, and in knowing me, you'll know the Father. It's a relationship. And so they were being taught who Jesus is. Now, of course, that left them mostly confused. 
But that's what it was after. Uh, know who Jesus is. And in knowing who Jesus is, know who the Father is. And see through mere miracles, which left by themselves appear magic. Uh, no, th- th- this is the Father revealing himself to us. Now, hold that in mind. Because on this particular day, it had been an exhausting day anyway. <clears throat> he had been teaching all day long. Um, that day was the day when he taught them the par- parable of the sower and um, many, many other parables and explained them much more than what's in our Bibles. And so um, he is now exhausted. Probably the people had come with the sick and it had just been non-stop from very, very early in the morning until middle of the afternoon. And the disciples, the Talmudin, are all ready to call it a day um, because they were not simply listening to Jesus. They were in charge of crowd control. They were there to make sure this whole thing went off smoothly. And so they're ready to go home, get a rest, get some food. And at that point, Jesus announced, we're going to the other side of the lake. Well, when your rabbi said, we're going to the other side of the lake, the Talmudin said, yes, sir. There there was no, you never contradicted. That was what you're trying to get a hold of. What does he do and why does he do it? And so... I can hear the sighs running through them, going to the other side of the lake. But from, there's a, three reasons why they didn't want to do that. Um, the other side of the lake, how can I explain it? Um, here, this is Galilee. This is the lake, Galilee. And here is Capernaum, where Jesus had most of these meetings. And... The other side was up here. You go across the lake that way. That would be, if you're standing here, that's the other side. So it wasn't down here. That too, Jesus often crossed the lake to down here. But the other side of the lake was there. Other side of the lake was a terrible place. No devout Jew would ever go there because that was Roman. The Romans had taken over Israel, but they had moved on that side of the lake. They'd moved in and they lived there and it became there. And you'll read about it as Decapolis, which means the 10 cities. Romans had 10 cities over there. And so over there, the other side of the lake, you had heathen temples. You had people who worshipped every god under the sun. They all had one thing in common, that they worshipped Caesar as God. They had no laws of morality whatsoever. And so uh, you, you, they raised pigs. You try and have a Jewish society where they raise pigs. Uh, there's no way. Uh, once uh, the, they said, send them to the pigs, you know that. So, and um, 
that not only so, but it was a place of the demonic. There was witchcraft. And Jesus says, we have got to go to the other side of the lake. Roman, pagan, idolatrous, demonic, a dark, dark place. But these Talmudin were fishermen, at least most of them were. And they're already looking at the sky. And when he suggested that they're going to get out in the lake, they said, we're reading the sky and there's a possibility of severe weather. And of course, Jesus took no words from them whatsoever. The unstable weather could come. He says, we've got to go to the other side. Jesus did a strange thing, maybe. It says that they got into the boat. And the boat um, would be an oversized rowboat. Don't get any ideas about it. Um, oversized rowboat with probably one sail. They didn't have a whole set of sails. It was just one sail. And um, so Jesus, and it makes such a point about it. You know that whoever wrote this was there because he said Jesus went to sit in the stern that's the back of the boat on the cushion now I mean why, why we don't have to know that right. or do we <laughs> what cushion is at the back of the boat there's only one cushion at the back of the boat it's where the person who steered the boat sat <laughs> It was on a sort of chair. So Jesus goes straight to the back of the boat and sits in the steering. He's going to steer the boat. And he sits in the only chair on board on a cushion. Now that cushion usually, um, well, it could be made of wood. Its cushion is pushing it, really. Um, and it, it was... Uh, filled with sand many times. We mustn't think it was a nice fluffy cushion. It was where the steerman went and it also used as ballast for the boat. Now, I ask the question and dismiss it. Just We're trying to get into this story that did they want Jesus to steer the boat? I, I would imagine he wouldn't be much good with the sail. Um, but he could use the tiller. Uh, um, or did he just go and take it over? If he just went and took it over, that's made a bit of a difficulty. Yeah. Uh, how are we going to steer the boat when he's sitting in the chair? And so I tend to think that he was the appointed steersman. Later on, when the storm was breaking the boat apart, and they wake him. In all of your translations, it says, Master, Master, do you not care that we're perishing? Do you remember that? Yeah. We well, see, that's not what the Greek says. The Greek says, Captain, Captain. Uh, and so it is, all through the Gospels, they called Jesus Captain of the Boat. And that would suggest they appointed him to steer it and it will go where he wants it to go. 
I don't know how long Jesus stayed awake. I know what it's like to fall asleep at the table <laughs> and you're exhausted. I don't know. But it wasn't very long before, as the boat is plowing through the Sea of Galilee, they look over and their steersman is is holding the tiller by hanging over it. He, he's, he's just there and he's asleep. Hold that in mind. But as the sky darkened and the rising wind and the spray is now joined with, with heavy drops of rain that are whipping the faces of these men. The the word there is, <clears throat> we've translated it windstorm, but it's got a hint there. It was a lot more than, a, you could say it was the mother of storms. That would be one translation that would fit. It could mean there were tornadoes in, in the storm. It could mean it was hurricane strength. And some even suggest that the word means that there was demonic activity trying to kill Jesus before he got to the other side. Whatever, this was no ordinary storm. And it is now um, heaving the boat um, as it crashes through the waves um, I don't know if you've been around boats. I, I was raised on the River Thames in London, and um, we the boats, little fishing boat, oh, very much the same. They they were oversized rowboats that a couple of fishermen could be in normally, though you could fit maybe six to ten other people there if you had to, uh, and, and one sail. And I've been out there when that wind is whipping and you hear the sails crack like a whip and you feel the boat shudder under the and, and it crashes into the waves and i suppose i get the gold medal for that uh when i first came to the states you know do any, you remember the days when you had to come to the states by a boat you know Anyway, you know, planes haven't been around that long. And um, so we came across the Atlantic in a, in a there were 3,000 passengers. This was no small boat. And we hit Hurricane Donna right in the middle of the Atlantic. And I, I went on deck because below deck was unspeakable. And um, I just clung to the mast and I, I saw what I could not replicate. Uh, they told me afterward that the waves were 70 feet high. And this boat, which now appeared no bigger than a rowboat, though we had 3,000 passengers, and we just crashed into the wave. Other times we went up the side of the wave and hovered on the top. And uh, you, you wonder whether there will be the next five minutes. It's and the waves then come crashing on top of the boat and it's running through your legs and the the seamen on board don't seem to be anywhere. There's nothing to do. They're at the mercy of, of the winds and they are being spun around like a top. They're flipped like a rag doll and 
Yeah, I, I, when I read this, I, I remember things like that. It's very possible the sails had begun to tear. It's very possible they were listening to the creak of the mast that is about to break in two. And we've got no steerman. He's asleep. <laughs> Not that it would make much difference anyway. There's nothing to steer in this wind. Um, and I, I can't imagine what was going through their mind as they looked back and they saw him sleeping. And we feel that uh, because the wind didn't stop when it came to Jesus. And so the waves that came crashing over the boat would, would come down upon Jesus like it came down upon everybody. He was saturated sitting there um, and uh, he was fast asleep. Um, the 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 boat was filling with water. It would have been up around their calves, up to their knees, and um, they are bailing as fast as they possibly can. But that's that's a fool's gold because you you bail and you throw it, and the wind catches it and throws it straight back at you. Um, so there it was. They they are in the middle of this storm. They could hardly hear each other speak. They're clinging to anything that looks as if it might just be stable for a few minutes. And with one hand they're holding on, the other they're bailing and trying to keep this thing afloat. The, the waves are shuddering above them. They're terrified. Of course they are. Who wouldn't be? And they keep looking back to Jesus, who's fast asleep. He's totally undisturbed by the fury that's going on around him. These, I say, are young men. They're a lot younger than what appears in many of the movies. Um, these were mostly late teenagers, one or two that were in their early, early 20s. But for all that, they'd been raised on the lake. They fished every night. They knew every mood of this lake. They could handle anything that came up on the lake, and today they can't handle it, which is a matter of great shame. They're the kind of mentality of go down with the boat. I'm wedded to the boat. I'm wedded to this lake. We... I'm ashamed, I'm angry that this storm has conquered us and we're not going to be able to ride it out. And then they're angry at him. How could he sleep as if it's a sunny day? You know, He healed lepers, for goodness sake. He opened the eyes of the blind. In the storm, he did nothing. Nothing. I, I think it was a wonder of abandonment. <laughs> How could he do this? We've lost words. And they just watch him in the storm. But finally, they have to go and wake him. How? You know, that takes half a sentence to say it. But how on earth did they do it? There's not handholds all the way to the back of the boat. They've got to slosh 
through water up to their knees as the boat is tossing unbelievably and the waves are coming over the top of the boat and they have to go back to wake him. And as they do, they, they are, they've lost it. They're, they're screaming with despair. And they've got to really scream because the wind is catching every word and tossing it out into the lake. This became a whimper from these tough fishermen. They sound as if they're about to cry. They, they grab him and they pull him up and they're screaming in his ear, wake up, we're drowning. We'll all be at the bottom of the lake if you don't do something. You don't care, that's the trouble. You don't care. You just sleep while we all die. And he did sleep. Pretend games are not in God's M.O. He didn't say, I'm going to pretend I'm asleep until you finally come and get me. No, he, were, he was asleep. And, and so he comes immediately wide awake. That's what the scripture says. Immediately wide awake. And he stood to his feet. Again, if you get the picture, it was a, a north, coming from the north storm. How do I know that? I don't know it. The weatherman in Israel told it to me. So that's where the storms on Galilee come from. They all come from the north. And, um, and so they're going across the lake. So to face the storm, he would have to face this way. And so he stands, that would be a trick, but he stood as the boat keeled under him and he spoke with a voice of such authority. It, it confronted the storm and it penetrated the rage of the storm. And he said, peace, hush, be still. The word hush there is what is in the original you know, at least a thousand years before, maybe more, in the Psalms, Psalm 107, it says that the tempest on the water that lifted high the waves, the waves mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. In their peril, the sailors' courage melted away. They reeled, they staggered like drunken men. They were at their wit's end. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. And they were glad when it grew calm. And he guided them to their desired haven. It's amazing. That was written at least a thousand years before this happened. And there'd be no question as good Jews, they knew that. They would know scriptures like that and couldn't help putting it together. No one knew exactly what happened. I mean, literally one minute we're waking him, shouting in his face. The next minute he's standing up and the Wind is streaming his hair behind him and 
his clothes are so, so saturated, but they're clinging to his body. And he, and he talks to the storm as if it's its owner and says, how dare you do this? Shut up, peace, hush. I, I knew a lion tamer in Johannesburg in Africa. He, 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 the, the lions that he had, he'd, um, been there at their birth and they'd, all, all their life he'd been the ever present human being. And of course the crowds didn't know that, but he, he could do anything. He could just curl up beside them and they wouldn't bother. And, um, at one point the, they got a bit antsy with, with members of the crowd and made a noise and he turned and almost said the same thing. Peace, you know, hush, shut up. Or like they did in the old South, hush puppies, you know, shut up. And um, I thought of this, the owner of all winds and waves and storms stood up and said, how dare you mess, go back, go back to sleep. And he says, immediately, like a whipped dog, the waves cowered before him and the waves all flattened out and the lake became as smooth as a mill pond. And and they they look, they're, they're amazed. The silence is intense because of the noise that was there half a second ago. Suddenly all noise is gone. All you're left with is that drip, drip, drip that's coming from the sail. And, and you're surrounded by this awe-inspiring silence. But now he turns to them. You know, have you ever seen him with the, the hair in ringlets because it's so wet and his clothes clinging to his body? And he turns to them and he said, why are you afraid? <laughs> that, that's a genuine question. Why are you afraid? Where, where is your faith? You see, all of life is, is either lived by love and trust or by fear and anxiety. Everything you've ever done in life comes from one of those two. If it's trust, it means that you love the one you're trusting enough to trust them. And love comes from knowing someone. You can't love a total stranger. And so the, the equation, if you'd like, is to know is to love is to trust. And it's no good just going to the trust bit and saying, I've got to get more faith. That's ridiculous. Um, you, f- you forget about the faith uh, and you go to the know, know him. And, and, and he's essentially, he's acting now as a rabbi. And he's saying, I, I've been teaching you, the father, to know him. To know him is to love him. To love him is to trust him. Where are, have you forgotten all of that? Where, where, where is your faith? Obviously their faith was not in God. In fact, you'd almost say for the moment they have forgotten there is a God. Yeah. 
because they, they, they say, you know, where, why are you sleeping? You don't care. There's no mention of get up and, and, and seek God for us. No mention that, you know, act as you are and deliver us. I, I'm personally convinced that they had an extra bucket with them to wake him up enough to put a bucket and then say, get on and help us bail. That's the only thing we know to do. And there was no suggestion that God might have another plan. Um, that they are, <laughs> they're gone. They, they, they've forgotten God. He's a blur in their mind. Their entire world is, we're going down. And why are you afraid? I mean, the question seems mocking, stupid, really. Why are you afraid? Are you nuts? Why are we afraid? Our lives are in jeopardy, man. And you ask why we are afraid? I'd better ask you, why could you sleep through it all? Now that's a question. And what is it that you just did? It's brought about a complete calm. It's interesting. It says that they, they worshipped him. And they said, what manner of man is this, that even the wind and the waves obey him? That's good. Up to a point. I mean, they, they at least grasped that he was more than man. They said he has to be God. That Psalm 107 was describing what God did. Now, they've just seen it happen play by play with the one they knew as man. And yet, and so they, they figured out enough that in that act to worship him as God. But um, that reminds me of a Western church. In good old way, missed it totally. There's nothing wrong. I'm not going to say it wasn't okay to worship God, especially under those circumstances. But you realize they'd missed the total point of everything. Yeah, if you're going to worship, you're looking at me now. Um, if you're going to worship God, who is just come from sleeping in your boat and now stands there like a great colossus that has stilled the storm and hushed it like a bunch of puppies. Um, wouldn't it be a good idea to say, what on earth are you doing here? I mean, it's obvious that you're God, but before we get to worship you, what are you doing here? What is God doing with a human body and has so possessed that human body that that human body lifted his hand against the storm and that human mouth mouthed the words, peace be still. What, what are you doing here, God? Sometimes we worship to get out of it. They're not going to ask that question. It's too threatening. They might be involved. <laughs> might have been here for them. Which, of course, that's the truth. Jesus, why did Jesus come? Seriously, seriously. And don't give me the evangelical thing that he came to die for us. You, you missed the whole point. You can't even speak of his dying for us until you answer all the other questions. 
No. What are you doing here? Jesus is here to take a handful of Taliban young kids and make them as he is. And he, I have to say, he thought they were well on the way to it. And they've blown the whole thing. And he genuinely said, why are you afraid? Haven't I taught you? Haven't you watched me? Haven't you learned? It's it's like in the middle of the night, your 10-year-old screams and wakes the whole house. And you go rushing in. He sits on the bed looking terrified because there's a spider at the end of the bed. And they might say, haven't you learned by now that screaming at the sight of a spider is not the thing to do? You know, if a two-year-old does it, that's one thing. But I thought you knew a little bit more than a two-year-old to scream at the spider. Do you follow? You don't look as if you are. Um, He expected them to have grasped just something of this vision that he has come here. God has joined us and joined us to such a point that he's a fisherman with them on the boat and going through the same as they're going through but obviously without any fear whatsoever. And he says, you, you, don't, you don't catch it? You, you've just got scripture that has nothing to do with what's happening now. You, you've got nothing to hold on to. Why, why, where is your faith? Oh, there, we know that. Their faith was in every wave, every wind, that's what they believed in. They believed in the storm. Believed it. I don't know. This is absolutely unbelievable in many respects. Um, because it is so... To, to say that this is what it is to be a Christian. To so trust in him that you know the mind of the Father that is in him. And when all hell breaks loose, if he said, we're going to the other side, then hell or high water, we're going to go to the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had said it, and he had, had said it in the same way that... In John chapter 4, where it said he must, he must needs go through Samaria. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. Which, of course, if you know the geography of Israel, he didn't. It it isn't that, well, that's the only road we must go. There was plenty of ways around Samaria. You didn't have to go. He said, I must. It's a divine must. The Father had put inside of him must. Mm-hmm. And so when it came to go this way around Samaria or that way 
through Samaria, the must of the Father said, we go through. Why? Because there was a woman there that nobody would talk to, and he must, the Holy Trinity, must sit and talk with that woman. It's a divine must, which is how that word must is used in the New Testament. And now, he didn't say the word, but as I said before, no devout Jew would go to the other side. Nobody. You're you're asking for trouble. They're probably going to come and get you. And they're the Romans, so where's the police? There are no police. They are the police. Uh, And they're going to come and beat the crap out of you because they do that. And you're you're saying we've got to go to the other side? Are you mad? But we're good Taliban, and so we don't say that. But it was the must. He must. And they're included in his must. And all they can do is say, we were afraid, we're drowning. How could you drown if the Father said we're going across? We're going across. How we're going to get there, I don't know. But that's really his business because it sure wasn't my idea to go in the first place. Put it like this. The how how is it that you go through life and you know it's dangerous? If it's a matter of physical danger and it's immediate, present to us. It is your skin that picks that up. Your skin is a receiving station. <clears throat> you mothers know it far better than us guys. In the middle of the night, do you remember? The baby whimpered, and you shut up in bed and all hands on deck. The baby had not even cried yet, but you were there. You picked it up. How did you pick it up? It wasn't your ear. Your ear merely recorded sounds. It was your whole body's transmitter and receiver that the baby's about to have trouble. And you are there before the baby has a chance to do any more. Is that why Jesus slept through the storm? No. Danger of all dangers, mother of all storms is going crazy around his head, and he doesn't count that as dangerous. His skin doesn't pick up danger. It picks up just this annoying rain on my skin. the, The point is, what do you pick up as you go through life? What do you, is this a danger? Is it something we should just collapse and or is it that he is our protection he's our provider he's our strength I can do it because he said so and Jesus believes that so I'll believe it too I don't know how that would have worked out you know what were they supposed to do well, I I think 
and this sounds crazy, but think about it before you think it's crazy. Um, what does a little child do in a thunderstorm in the middle of the night? Comes running to you and snuggles against you and says, I'll sleep with you tonight. <coughs> Is it possible that what a good idea would have been for them to go and snuggle with Jesus at the stern of the boat and saying, if this is what you believe, we'll join you. You know, it's certainly possible. Did they leave him out? No, I think what they did in the end, they should have done at the beginning only in doing it at the beginning without any anger or fear or screaming anxiety, they should have woken him and says, we're in a storm and we're trusting you. I think that is very possible. It is remotely possible that this was one of those times when he is expecting them to do what he did in the end. Yeah. You know, they'd been through this, or they're going to, because once you understand he was the rabbi teaching the Talmudin, no, nowhere in the Gospels do we expect, it, now Jesus did this, Jesus did this, Jesus. He's always pulling them in. And we don't read those chapters very much. That's boring, you know. We want to see what Jesus did. But he, so he sent them to heal the sick. Do you remember? This is long before the Holy Spirit came. He sent them to the places that he was going to come to, and, and you go, and he tells them, heal the sick, cast out demons, preach the good news. There's a bunch of teenagers. They, they, yeah, I, I'm teaching them. And I am sending them in my name, so go for it. You, for this one time, you can share my spirit. Peter recognized that just the night before, or evening before, uh, they had fed the 5,000. You know, I've told you many times, Jesus didn't feed them. He Well, he did, but he shared it with the 12 so that it got confused as to who was doing it. He put the bread in the hands of the twelve, little tiny pieces of bread and fish. And he said, now you go and feed the multitude. And so they had to take from that little piece of bread in their hand and keep on feeding people, and it wouldn't go away, and it wouldn't go away, and it wouldn't go away, because they were involved in that miracle in their own hand. Peter recognized, I get what's going on here. You're, you're bringing us to do what you do. And so that night, Jesus is walking on the water, and it's Peter, who without any pushing from anywhere, said, I want to come and walk with you, if you'll give me permission. So he's saying, I'm not going to jump in on this, but I get it. And Jesus is delighted and says, of course, come on, come on. That's exactly what he was after. Is it possible that he expected one of them to stand up and rebuke the storm and to do it in the name of Jesus, in his authority, 
Or is it possible they should have woken Jesus up and says, can I? And he would have been delighted to say, go on, do it. Yeah. You know, There's many ways of looking at it. Instead, they say, you don't care. <laughs> say you love us. If you love us, why is this happening? Come on, we could all write the book on that. <laughs> there, there is... No answer to why. No answer. So just scrap it. Why did something happen? I don't know why something happened. There's no point in asking. It happened. And in a world gone crazy, yeah, it happens. You just waste your energy, your mental energy in, in trying to say why. The, the, the question should be what? are you doing let's do it together and um uh, what was jesus doing if you were at the retreat then you'll understand this a lot better than the others but jesus continually used his imagination where, where do you think he heard his father's voice and saw what he did. Mm -hmm. It was in his imagination. Mm -hmm. Imagination is not to be confused with daydreaming. Um, imagination is, is what makes us part of what makes us made in the image of God. Yes. In our imagination, we can see what isn't. Mm -hmm. And what we see is real. And imagination is the process by which we take what we see that nobody else can see, but we've seen it, is real, and we bring it into yes. substance, reality. And so what did Jesus see? Jesus saw them walking up the beach on the other side. And as the boat dipped underneath the waves, he saw and felt walking up the beach the other side there's no other explanation he's operating from a different reality to these others they their imagination they see the boat sinking and they feel it even though it isn't right now it's imagination under the control of the Holy Spirit and we are created to imagine. And it's imagining what God says, imagining what we're not making it up. Yeah. We're not just having a few good thoughts. Yeah. He said it. Jesus, the word of God, speaks it in my heart. Mm -hmm. The Holy Spirit will accomplish it. And that accomplishment begins in our imagination. You see, if you, you pray for a sick person, or yourself, and in praying for them, you see them still sick, then have you really prayed? God bless your nod. Um, if we pray for a sick person, we cannot effectually pray until we see they're made well. 
Okay, sorry. I should have kept this for the retreat. Um, yeah. No, I, I had a friend out in the Far East, and he wouldn't pray for people unless he had a picture of them from the good days. And he said, when I pray, I don't see your sick face. I don't see you hobbling or, this is what I see. And he said, that's giving thanks to God that that's what he's going to accomplish. Um, Begins there. If If you're a preacher, you have to have seen the whole meeting before you step into the pulpit. You step there to be the word of God to the people. You don't have to find that out when you're preaching. If you do, sit down. I've got somebody else to take your place. It's uh, yeah, so true. Um, so we are co-workers together with God. Where does He start? He start with you standing in front of people in need and don't know what to do. Or stand in front of your own self when you're sick and I don't know what to do. It doesn't matter if it takes you a week to bring your imagination in line with his imagination. It's a pity that our translators are afraid of that word. And so they've left it out many times. One time it's translated pretty consistently through the New Testament as seemed. It seemed. So they said, do you remember at the the first church meeting there um, in Jerusalem, they, they wrote a letter to the churches and they said, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. He said, our imagination... And the Holy Spirit's imagination came together and we came to this conclusion. Now that's a board meeting. (laughs) The S-E-E-M-E-D is an ancient word. Well, we do use it today, but um, it means the gathering together of all scattered things in the workshop, because your imagination is your workshop. And it's there you put it all together and it seemed, the result was, the result, I see something. And and in a board meeting like that, well, you see it, I see it, we see it, Holy Spirit sees it, let's go. Um, and that is one word that could, could be, be translated as imagination. It contains the idea of imagination. So... Um, the big thing you must remember when we say that imagination is dealing with the invisible real. Yes. Mm. So when when you when you um, are talking of your imagination, it, it never uses the word "I wish." I wish this would happen. Yeah. Oh. I, I pray that that will happen. No, imagination sees it. He is walking up the beach. How we get there, I don't know. And if all hell breaks... Sorry? It's a must one. It's a must. And there's many musts in our life that if we're awake to it, you see it. Um, 
And that's what he was teaching, these little images of himself. And he was he was obviously upset that they hadn't seen it. But he, he saw, if the Father said it, if it's the must, then what I see, I am walking up the beach on the other side. Yes. Now, if we have met the mother of storms on the way, I don't know what it will take to get us there, mm-hmm. but then it's not really my business. Yeah. I've done everything I can, so I look to him whose must it is. And, um, and you know, the, the, this... This is true looking at the running of a house. It's it's true in looking at the rest of our lives. It's true in every small way um, where we meet a storm. That's, I mean, it's breaking us apart. To another person, it doesn't look like anything. But but it's breaking us apart. And um, stop, stop. And see what Father sees, and see that Jesus sees what Father sees, and Holy Spirit sees what Father sees, and it, that's where we begin. They began to walk up that beach before they left the beach on the other shore, in terms of where Jesus comes from. It's the invisible real, and... um You know, it's to do with identity. (coughs) He knew his identity as the father's son. So he rested in his father's care, his commitment to never leave me nor forsake me. And that encompassed every detail, including an afternoon nap. You know. And you say, well, that was Jesus. I know it was Jesus. But Jesus himself said that applies to everybody. Read John 8, somewhere around the 40s, verse 40 or so. And he's talking to the Pharisees. And he's accusing them of planning to kill him. And he says... I operate having seen what my father is about to do. And you operate based on what you've seen your father. So Jesus says we, we've got the same machine. Imagination works for everybody. But if you're letting it be the, the works of darkness, then you'll have an imagination that will give you a million ways to accomplish your works of darkness. But if you surrender that to Jesus via the Holy Spirit, it's amazing what you see in that imagination. And of course, as I said before, these guys imagine the storm. And so they, the, the result of their imagination was sheer terror and fear. And it was real because yeah. they'd seen it. In their imagination, they could feel the water rising above their nostrils. Jesus, in his imagination, saw them walking up the beach and said, I sleep. 
It's real. Just depends what movies are playing in your head. So. Yeah. The that's how the early church operated. Paul said, and you might not have read this. It's one of those scenes you slide over to get to the big stuff. And um but Paul said to the Thessalonians, Be followers of me as I am a follower of the Lord. And people immediately say blasphemy, you know. You could say follow Jesus. Well, where is he right now to follow? I I, I need something. That's only because you haven't seen the whole point. He is in you. And your converts do not need a stupid little book saying, take a King James Version of the Bible and read it. Are you nuts? (laughs) Half the people here couldn't take the King James Version of the Bible and understand what it says. And you give it, I'm not saying you, but church out there gives it to new converts. And they said, that will do, that will do. And they're becoming disciples. No, they're not. No. We are living our life in Christ in order that others may live their life in Christ. Yeah. Um, if you read John fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, that's what it's all about. That Jesus brought them to the finale. The finale. They'd been his tamilid, uh, tamadin. And, um, well, what's the end of that? The end is, I'm going to commission you to go and make disciples, make tamadil. And, um, and, and so, well, they'd already come to the conclusion he's Messiah, he's king, he's... And so they figured, well, when it comes to our graduation, uh, it will be who gets the, you know, Minister of Treasury, who... who He's going to give the government to us. And then begins the questions, who's who's the greatest? And they're arguing on the eve of that last meeting. And so Jesus cut that short by washing their feet and says, the person who washes your feet is the greatest of all. Uh, But it was a very uneasy atmosphere. And you look at them and you say, these are graduating this is it. They, you know, they, they've come through three years of learning straight from him. Now you're going to, yes, he said, actually, I might as well tell you now, I'm leaving you. Yeah. You're leaving. John 14, he says, I'm leaving, but I'm going to ask the Father. He will give you another, now, my Bible says, counselor. That's as good as it comes, really. Um, but in the light of what we've said, he's given you another captain. He's given you another to be at the helm of the storm. The spirit of truth 
You can, the world can't accept him. It neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him. He lives with you, will be in you. And I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I've just told you I'm leaving, but I will come to you. Before long, the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. On that day, which actually was approximately six weeks away. So don't come telling me about an end time revival. Load of crap. This happens six weeks after the resurrection. He says, on that day, when all this happens, on that day you will realize that I am in my Father. You are in me, and I am in you. That's what this relationship was all about, that you become so one with the teacher that you are the image of the teacher. John fourteen twenty three says, my, love, my father will love him. We will come to him and make our home with him. So God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit said, this is Christianity. I'm going to live inside of you. John 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If a man remains in me and I remain in him, he'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So I'm saying you're, I'm leaving, you're on your own, but the Spirit's coming will be me, your life. And if you remain in me, my words remain in you. Ask whatever you wish. It will be given to you. Prayer meetings are no big deal or wailing meetings. They are very simply walking and talking with the Father, Son, and Spirit. He says, this is my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. But we all know what that word was. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, have that intimate relationship with you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is not living forever, or P.S. you do, but that's not eternal life. (laughs) Eternal life is you know the Father, you know Jesus, and you live this life on earth, here and now. John 17 Jesus was praying for them. But then he says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Take that and swallow it. Jesus said that we would be one with him, even as the Father and the Son are one, even as the Holy Trinity, so we would now know the Father and the Son in the Spirit. And and all of this he said, um, that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. Father, I want those you have given to me to be with me where I am. See my glory. And again, this isn't heaven. This is now. 
the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Finally, John 17, I have made you known to them. That's it. Jesus is saying to the Father, you taught me in my humanity who you are. I've passed that on to them. I've taught them. And I will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be inside of them and that I myself may be inside of them. The early church, that's, that was Christianity. Galatians 2.20, I live yet not I, it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. That is, he said, the faith of Jesus is my faith. The wisdom of Jesus is my wisdom. I live, yet not I, it is Christ. When they let the Christians loose in Jerusalem, it is the temple, good old temple, they saw that they were uneducated. They didn't have the proper letters after their name. But they saw that they had been with Jesus. That is, they had this relationship that is all about. Well, I think I better shut up because it's an hour and a half. And so I shall bless you with the greatest Christmas you've ever known and a new year that is gilded with the presence of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. The Lord be with you all. Amen, amen. and amen.